Let's start with our reading from Ecclesiastes 3. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to throw away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain the workers from their toll? I have seen the business that God has given to everyone to be busy with. He has made everything suitable for its time. Moreover, he has put a sense of past and future into their minds, yet they cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I know there is nothing better for them than to be happy and enjoy themselves as long as they live. Moreover, it is God's gift that all should eat and drink and take pleasure in all their toil. I know that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done this so that all should stand in awe before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already is, and God seeks out what has gone by. This is the word of the Lord for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, it's a privilege to step into the pulpit today uh, back at our home church, even with these, this difficult passage that Scott and Jerry and friends have sent our way today. Uh, we've been away for the last six months overseas, in fact, in Scotland. I'm teaching at IUPY, but had a Fulbright Fellowship, so we were at the University of Edinburgh, took our whole family with us. Uh, and while it was a great experience, it is really also good to be home. Part of that's because we now have a full-size refrigerator and a washing machine for a family of six and a dryer that actually works. But the real reason is also the community that we have here uh, and through Zionsville and particularly at this church. Uh, that's, that's an important part of, of our lives and it's so good to be back. Uh, and over these past few weeks of summer, we've been dying into this short sermon series that will take us through July and August uh, called Stars with Scars. We'll study some of these well-known characters from the Old Testament, we'll call them stars, and we'll see how each of them has overcome some of their challenges or scars in their own life. The last few weeks, uh, Brendan and Scott have led us through the story of Ruth. And if you remember from Scott's sermon last week, Ruth uh, marries Boaz and sort of traces that line, lineage, all the way to Jesus, uh, but goes through King David, who is the father of Solomon, who will be the most prosperous king of Israel. And Solomon will be the figure that we'll turn to uh, over these next few weeks, building from the lessons that we can learn in the book of Ecclesiastes. So first, before we dive into the text, what should we know about the figure of Solomon? Well, first, he was the builder of the temple in Jerusalem. You might remember that King David, his father, wanted to, but David was a warrior king. He sort of had, he had blood on his hands, and so God forbid him from building that temple, but promised that his son 
could build a temple that was worthy of the worship of God, to, to hold the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy of Holies. And that's what happens. Solomon builds this impressive temple. And Solomon's story from there is mostly developed over into the Old Testament in the books of history, really like 1 Kings, 1 Kings 3 in particular. And we know Solomon most often for these twin themes of, of wealth and wisdom. His wealth seemed to be unmatched among fellow kings of Israel. In many ways, it was sort of the golden age of Israel's trade and, and wealth. Because of the military might that his dad, King David, had built up, Solomon could maintain the borders of Israel without having to sort of flex the muscles of the army um, that he had around him. And he controlled the, the trade lines, the trade routes in and out of Israel. And so he would collect duties or taxes on everything that kind of came in from, um, well, from connecting buyers and sellers. It was sort of like an ancient toll road, so to speak. And these funds were what funded this beautiful, luxurious palace and court that Solomon developed. So Solomon was known for his wealth, but at the same time, we know Solomon uh, and his tradition as a wise king. And even, uh, even today, you might say wealth and wisdom don't always seem to go uh, together. But the particular story that's recorded for us in 1 Kings 3 tells how Solomon gained this gift of wisdom. God appears to Solomon in a dream uh, and because Solomon has followed God's ways, uh, God asks Solomon to ask for what he wants. And so Solomon's request is for wisdom. And God was pleased with this uh, request because Solomon did not ask for riches or power over his enemies or long life. And so God granted him that gift of wisdom and on top of that promised riches, peace, power, and long life as well. And this next story in Kings, 1 Kings 3 demonstrates what Solomon's wisdom would actually look like. So two women come to the king and ask for a judgment. Both had recently had a child. One child dies. The first mother uh, is accused of switching the living for the dead child in the middle of the night. And so these two moms come to the king to ask for a judgment, a common uh, practice of the time. And so Solomon ordered the baby cut in half and divided to the two moms. Now you remember the story, right? Splitting the baby. And so the first, the first mom said, no, please stop. Uh, they'd much, she would much rather have the baby, her child, raised by another mother than to be killed. And so naturally, Solomon sees who the real mother is, reunites the mom and child. And this is the story that we're offered to demonstrate Solomon's wisdom. Wisdom that's uh, knowledge, but also sort of worldwide, you know, wise to the ways of the world, how people and, uh, relate to one another. So Solomon had it all, wealth and wisdom. He cast a long shadow over Israel, but like so often happens, his legacy didn't last. What was perhaps the pinnacle of Israel's power soon fell apart. Solomon's sons were not his equal. Uh, soon the kingdom was divided. Uh, a few hundred years later, the Babylonians would take over Israel. Solomon's temple, this beautiful temple, would be destroyed. And so all of that serves as a backdrop to our passage today. Tradition has it that Solomon is the author of three books in the Old Testament. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs, or Song of Solomon. 
And perhaps not surprisingly, since we've already talked about Solomon's um, reputation for wisdom, that these books fit into a specific genre um, called wisdom literature. And among these books, the tradition has it that they were sort of written at different periods in Solomon's life. So Song of Songs, the Song of Solomon, the, the rich, earthy, you might say, love poetry of Solomon's youth. Uh, Proverbs, kind of uh, maxims for sober middle age. And Ecclesiastes, uh, maybe more of Solomon in his disgruntled, curmudgeon even disillusioned older age. Now, we don't know if these books were penned by Solomon. It's quite possible they weren't. But as the tradition and the authors frame the story in that way, it's worth exploring in our text today with him in mind as a star figure with his own scars as well. But first, when we turn to this wisdom genre, we have to read it in the way that it was intended. It's important to note that this is more poetry than prose. And these are texts that are not necessarily looking for easy answers. And like poetry, the ideas here are more for us to ponder than they are to process for easy answers. So this idea of wisdom then, what is wisdom? It's not the same as knowledge or intellect or expertise. Wisdom, particularly in this biblical tradition, is tied to an idea of acknowledging and honoring God. To quote Proverbs 9, 10, a verse you might sort of know, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So biblical wisdom is about a proper relationship to God. The fear of the Lord is regularly invoked as a biblical phrase. That fear is not to be scared or anxious of God, but rather to realize our place in the world. God is God and we are not. As Old Testament scholar Ellen Davis would say, biblical wisdom is living in the world in such a way that God and God's intentions for the world are acknowledged in all that we do. But as Ecclesiastes makes clear, while the fruit of wisdom may lead to a well-ordered life, it doesn't mean a Pollyanna, whimsical, syrupy, sweet existence. There are not many verses in Ecclesiastes that we'd want to needlepoint on a pillow. It's a difficult book. And some biblical commentators and even regular folks like you and me might wonder what it's even doing in the Bible. And it's not a place that we go for sermon texts too often. But it's also no secret where the author of Ecclesiastes is trying to take us. He's clear from the beginning. Chapter 1, verse 1. The words of the teacher, the son of David, Solomon, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the teacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Just in case you didn't get the point by that point. Over the course of this chapter, the first chapter, Solomon narrates all of the wisdom that he's been given. He makes clear that we know that there was no wiser king in all of Israel's history. But that has found, um, but he's found that all of this led him to simply chasing after wind, a mist that's here briefly and soon gone, sort of an ethereal, something that you can't hold on to. So that's the refrain we get throughout this book. Vanity of vanities, our own expectations that we're unique and our achievements may stand the test of time and chasing after when, a fit, uh, sort of uh, fleeting. So that's chapter one, talking about uh, Solomon's wisdom. Chapter two follows the same patterns, oh, but moves from wisdom to wealth. And so Solomon recounts that he has everything. He even refers to it as a bit of a test, an experiment. So he, for, he forbids himself no pleasure. 
buildings, vineyards, wives, food, drink, servants, riches, you name it. But at the end of the day, he found it too was all vanity, chasing after the wind. So now at this point, two chapters in, you may want to stop reading. It's not really a a feel-good text, but... We'd rather have some positive energy, you know, sort of like motivational posters. Maybe you've had one of these in your home or your office. I I have a few of them we can just kind of look through. So something like this, you know, mountaintop, make it happen. Some people want to make it happen. Uh, Some wish it would happen. Others make it happen, right? Or success, our greatest glory is not in never falling but in rising every time we fall. You put some soaring eagles and some mountaintops and you can make all of this look Wonderful. That's not what Ecclesiastes does. But you may have seen these demotivational posters too, right? Sort of the spoofs. Success is the true meaning of failure. Failure is the true meaning of success. Everything is the same. Everything is ultimately death. There's nothing at the top of the mountain. There's only the void. The void is eternity. (laughs) That sounds a little more like Ecclesiastes. Well, the first few chapters of Ecclesiastes, and really quite a bit of the entire book, a little, look a little bit more like the demotivational posters than these inspirational ones. All this vanity chasing after the wind. So what are we supposed to do with that? Well, that's something of an existential human question faced through history, and philosophical schools of thought have tried to respond. You've got some folks like the Stoics in the Greco-Roman world who would seek to live a life of virtue by intentionally withdrawing from earthly pleasures, living in stark conditions, disciplining the mind and body. Or on the other side, the Stoics aren't the first people you want to invite to the party, but the Epicureans, on the other hand, were the opposite. Their response to Solomon's question was to make the most of the time they had by seeking all the earthly pleasures they could find. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you may die. So if these are these two poles, let's say the Stoics and Epicureans, that we really, you know, maybe opposite extremes of the ancient world, that we really fall, you know, into following today, the biblical response is different. The biblical response seeks to lead us towards acceptance and humility. The author of Ecclesiastes makes clear we're not unique or special. We're beholden to the same challenges and weaknesses that affect every other human. Solomon in all his splendor, wealth, and wisdom. He too was mortal. He would die. His accomplishments, like the prosperous kingdom he built, the temple, they would not last forever. And in contrast to God and God's work in the world, we're fooling ourselves to think that we fully are in control of our own destiny. We can't shape life to conform to our desires, And around the biggest questions in life, we may not really have that much control at all. The biblical response is not simply throwing up our hands and giving up, though. Rather, our response is humility and fearing the Lord. That's more of a a disposition, a worldview, and I would say a set of daily practices that ground us. And grounding, though, is a unique idea. You know, before I had studied this text this week, I never made the connection that the root word for humility really is tied into like humus, soil. So this this connection to be humble is to be rooted, to be planted, to be grounded. It's sort of the opposite of kind of abstract, escapist way of living in the world. Instead, it's real, earthy, 
fully experienced, fully enjoyed, and at times fully endured. That's real life humanity, grounded and rooted in everyday life. And there's an embedded theology there as well, acknowledging that life in all its complexities, ups and downs, is a gift of God. That doesn't mean it's easy to understand, but that too is an important lesson. The wisdom literature that we're reading here over these next few weeks isn't seeking to provide easy answers. It's making clear that living life in a way that acknowledges God and our rightful place in the world isn't easy to live out or to understand, but that seems to be how life works. And so that leads us back to our text today. Chapter three may be a bit more familiar to us. And if you're honest, you can tell me that it's because you've read this text in Ecclesiastes many, many times, or you're thinking to that, what's that bird song from 1965? Turn, turn, turn. So that's probably in in our heads. Now a younger generation might remember that from the Forrest Gump soundtrack. Or maybe there's a few of us here who've never seen a CD, much less a vinyl album or an eight track but it's a catchy too. So this text is all about time. The word time itself is used 30 times in 14 verses. Now, we live in a a time-obsessed culture, right? Hours and minutes are our most valuable commodity. And so we have this relationship with time, and it's it's much more like a, much less like a, a beautiful sort of rendition of the bird's thinking about the seasons, and it's more about like a countdown clock. You know, it's really the ticking 10, 9, 8. You remember that, that show, 24, you know, that show? and That's one of the most stressful shows that you could ever watch. And the reason why is that ticking clock, you could hear it, you know, just the ting, ting, ting. That's much more how our relationship with time usually functions. But the teacher penning this book, Solomon, thinking about pointing us to another points us to another relationship with time. It's not a commodity that we have to squeeze as much from as we can. Rather, there is time enough for all aspects of life. So maybe we should be thinking of time less as hours, minutes, and seconds, and more as seasons that come and go. For as the text reminds us, for everything, there is a season. So let's listen to that first part of the text one more time and focus, I want you to focus as you listen on one or two lines that may draw your attention. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance, a time to throw away stones, and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek, and a time to lose, a time to keep, and a time to throw away, a time to tear, and a time to sow, a time to keep silence, and a time to speak, a time to love, a 
time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. What, what drew your attention? What time or season might you be in right now? Some of these are bigger kinds of seasons. Some of them are, are maybe a bit smaller, but that too is just like life, right? Now, if you're a parent, I'm sure you've gotten the advice at some point to savor the days because the days may seem long, but the years are short. And I think that's true. We've got four kids, but we're in the midst of potty training our youngest right now, and the days don't seem <laughs> real short right now. Or when you're overseas in Scotland for six months, what a great gift and experience that we'll never forget, walking a city surrounded by history, new friends, making new connections, traveling on trains, hiking the highlands. But at the same time, I, I mentioned before, it wasn't always easy, right? It was beautiful, but it was challenging. For a family of six, no car, a mini fridge, a minuscule washing machine, living on top of one another, there were challenges too. The seasons of life sometimes feel like they can change across a single day. And sometimes the magnificent and the difficult are happening at the same time. And as we've just gotten back a few weeks ago, I think in the King household, we're taking verse six to heart. You know, there's a time to keep and a time to throw away. So after living in Scotland for six months out of a handful of suitcases, we've realized how much we really do need or don't need. And when we return, let's just say there's a lot less keeping and a lot more throwing away or passing along our trips to Goodwill uh, in our household the last few weeks. So again, what, what time or what season might it be for you? What stands out? Remember, this wisdom literature is more poetry than prose. It's meant to ponder rather than to process. So where might you be now? Where have you been in the recent past? Where, what do you remember about those seasons? How have those experienced and how you've handled them prepared you for where you are today? I think another point here is to take note of what these actions that Solomon describes are and are not. So first thing to notice that, that these are not choices that we can either say yes or no to. Rather, they're, they're moments in life. And more than that, they're more like essential, inevitable experiences. Now, you may not have experienced all of these seasons yet, but it's likely that you will at some point in life. The seasons are more like, like a pattern of what it means to be human. And they're not necessarily experiences that we can solve or we can earn or we can avoid with skill, hard work, or even good luck. For those of us achievers, Solomon's experience reminds us that even with everything he had, his wealth and his wisdom, he too was beholden to the human condition. And of course, these times, these seasons are not ones that we can schedule when they're most convenient. They come when they come, sometimes with warning, other times not. They may be short and sweet or long and lingering. And so again, one of the lessons that Ecclesiastes is teaching us is one of humility, acknowledging our proper place in the world in relationship to God. That's what my friend Kate Bowler has experienced. You may, you may have been familiar with Kate Bowler's work at some point. Her books, she's got a, a great book called Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved. 
a new one on being called No Cure for Being Human and Other Truths I Need to Hear. These are fantastic, and she's got a, a podcast, Everything Happens, where she'll uh, really open up about the difficulty of talking with people and the hard things in life. She's uh, there in, in, in Durham, North Carolina, and she, there's, a, there's a mural that, that was painted at her, her headquarters office of her, of her organization. It's a, a mantra that she would oftentimes you know, see in her life. Life is so beautiful. Life is so hard at the same time. So Kate comes to these topics from her own deep wrestling with them. She was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer at age 35. Um, and like many of us, she was on the road to success. She had just gotten her dream job at Duke University. She was a well-regarded scholar. She had a wonderful husband, a brand new son, and then this diagnosis. And she would say, when life is communicated to you in long words of medical conditions and endless scans, risk of experimental drug trials, and updated percentages that note your chance of survival on a six months or yearly basis, she was given a, a 10% chance to live over the next year, and then that would sort of be recalculated to 8% and the 7.5%. She realized that um, you could feel less than human. Kate has worked quite a bit with care communities, thinking about doctors and nurses and counselors and developing humility and empathy and how to talk to people about life and death more humanely. Yes, as a patient, but also as a person. But another key lesson that Kate clearly wants us to learn, and particularly us religious types, is if med medical jargon may lead sometimes to, for us to feel a little bit less than human, uh, easy answers and uninvited advice can also be unhelpful. So on this front, uh, Kate makes her case by taking on the greeting card industry. So we've looked at motivational posters, but we could do the same for Hallmark too. So when life is hard, when we're sitting with people who are suffering, whether in the midst of an illness, a loss, depression, whatever it might be, the words they're looking for are rarely everything happens for a reason or God needs another angel or you'll get through this, don't worry. So oftentimes these platitudes are what we say when we don't know what to say. They're easy, but they're cheap. And sometimes we need what we need when we go in through these tough times are to sit with people, to sit alongside them. Just like verse seven reminds us, there's a time to keep silent and there's a time to speak. So if you must speak, Kate encourages us to be honest. So she's worked with some friends to design a whole new type of greeting card. Here's a couple. Please let me be the first person to punch you, punch the next person who tells you everything happens for a reason. I'm sorry you're going through this. Or my favorite, if, there's God, if, if this is God's plan, God is a terrible planner. Uh, no offense if you're reading this, God, because you did a really good job with other stuff like waterfalls and pandas. Because in many ways, these kinds of greeting cards are honest. Uh, they're playful, but they're honest, and they fit into this idea of the kind of wisdom literature genre of Ecclesiastes. Human nature leads us to want answers, and God doesn't always seem to give those to us, at least not on our timeline. But Solomon doesn't really seem to be seeking answers in Ecclesiastes. Perhaps at that stage of life, he knows that they just might not come. But through these seasons of life that we all experience, he's reminding us to embrace humility. Humility doesn't mean that we can't ask God why, and it doesn't mean that we should fall into 
paralysis, just accepting and not responding to whatever comes our way. But instead, humility leads us to embrace our own finitude and fear of the Lord by acknowledging that we're not God, but we can still believe in a good God. Ecclesiastes' life and its blessings are routinely named as a gift. If the word vanity comes up over and over again, so does this notion of the gift and God as giver. I don't necessarily know what that means when we encounter unspeakable tragedies personally or in our community or in our world. Ecclesiastes doesn't answer that question. The biblical tradition, though, does make plenty of space, however, for us to cry out to God, to ask why, to live without answers, even without having to make to the cheap claim that everything happens for a reason. So just like the mantra that Kate came to embrace that was painted on that mural in Durham, life is so beautiful. Life is so hard. In most seasons, it may be both at the same time. That may be true for you at any given moment, but it's definitely true at any given time when we open our eyes to see the world around us. If we're in the midst of a season of laughing and dancing, there are others next door or at Kroger or at school or riding the rail trail that are in the midst of weeping and mourning. That's, that's life. As Solomon notes in the verses that follow his poetic recounting of time and seasons, it seems that the lesson he might be advocating for in living humbly is finding a way to live life fully in the now. The gift of life God has given us is good, even when it's hard. Solomon calls us to appreciate each moment. He reminds us in verse 11 that we as humans have this unique gift compared to other species, given to us by God to sense the past and the future, but at the same time, we can't comprehend the full story of what God has done or, or will do from beginning to end. And then Solomon will say, there is nothing better for humans then to be happy and enjoy themselves as long as they live. Moreover, it's God's gift that all should eat and drink and take pleasure in all their toil. We know worry, anxiety, overworking is killing us. Solomon reminds us that whatever we build won't last forever. Our name may not make the history books. Our efforts to predict the future, to plan for the ups and downs in life are fleeting. But life is still good. Good food, good friends, meaningful work, nature, art, beauty, it's all around us. That's a gift from God. Everyday life is a gift through the mountaintops and the mundane carpool lines. Embracing that gift in humility is the proper fear of the Lord. Acknowledgement of God that serves as the beginning of wisdom. And at the end of life, after accumulating all his wealth and wisdom, that's the message that Solomon seems to want to share with us. It's not an easy lesson to learn in whatever season of life that we may be in. Trusting in a God and fully experiencing life day in and day out when things are easy or hard, but that seems to be the lesson that Solomon, in all his wisdom, stars and scars, would have for us today. Amen. Let us pray together. Dear God, we thank you for this hard lesson, and we ask that you will give us a special gift of humility to find our ways to live life fully into the now, whatever it might be for us, in the good times, the difficult times, times of weeping, laughing, mourning, and dancing. 
be with those that we meet who could use a, a, a word or a silent uh, partner to, to, to weep with, to mourn with, to laugh with. Help us be that for one another, even as we are trusting and acknowledging in your own good gifts each and every day. For it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.